So welcome everybody to um, WEM Live session number 20, which is seems to be quite a journey. We started these sessions at the beginning of lockdown and we've done them pretty regularly all the way through. Um, and now I've reached the auspicious number of 20, which seems quite incredible. Um, we're learning a lot about the technology that goes behind this. So you'll have to excuse me if we, um, Nathan and I both have thunderstorms at, at our end. So if we cut out, then we'll, we'll make sure that we get back online as soon as we can. We're also broadcasting to um, the web page on web live on Facebook. So hello to everybody there. But what this session is about is about finding your why why expedition medicine extreme medicine is so important we believe to both you personally as clinicians and medics but also to your career so this is about as i mentioned this is about the why why is expedition medicine important we started um well what's now called world extreme medicine 20 years ago and it was very much around the fact that we felt that medicine was coming increasingly more specialized for very logical and very good reasons but we felt it actually was doing medics a disservice in so much as it was pushing people down a very narrow pathway where actually the benefit was from doing expedition medicine, you could combine your medical training and your knowledge and expertise and take it out into the field. But in returning to medicine in, in hospital medicine or primary care or in uh, paramedicine, para it would bring in the skills that you learn in the outdoor environment on expeditions in extreme environments actually equally important equally valuable in your everyday career and we felt that medics taking part in extreme medicine and wh whether that was expedition medicine humanitarian medicine disaster medicine we're actually returning to medicine better medics better team leaders better problem solvers with a better appreciation of the systems that they were working in and it gives me really great pleasure to welcome Nathan, who's a junior doctor in an emergency department in London, who's very successfully combined medicine with his personal medical career. Um, and the interesting touch points that we found is that actually the very reasons we set up extreme medicine almost 20 years ago were, are elucidated by Nathan in why he takes his, his embraced expedition medicine into his career. So Nathan, it's, it's really, it's our honor to have you here and we're really very much looking forward to your presentation this evening so without further ado because nobody wants to listen to me they want to listen to you nathan over to you great thank you so much for that uh, very humbling introduction um, i'd just like to say a massive thank you to yourself um, and to world extreme medicine for having me on to talk it's a great honor and um yeah it's amazing to be talking to so many people from around the world um such an international audience um to go with the, the world extreme medicine so uh, that's fantastic. Um, so uh, we first spoke, it was a couple of months ago now, wasn't it? And we, we I think I dropped you a message on Instagram or so, I can't, can't remember exactly. But anyway, we ended up uh, having a chat on the phone and um, I was saying a bit about, you know, why expedition medicine was um, so, so important, I think, not just for, you know, a free holiday up Kilimanjaro, but actually as a fundamental part of my career. And um, it was a really interesting conversation because as we were talking, it sounded like, you know, everything I was thinking now is exactly the same things you were thinking 20 years ago when you set up WEM and it's what you found over the years. Um, so I felt like we were singing from the same hymn sheet on a lot of things. So, um, yeah, I'm delighted to be here to be able to talk a little bit about my journey and hopefully inspire some of you guys uh, here today to just have a pause and have a think about your why you do what you do, essentially. Um, so just to get started then, um, so this talk is 
it's titled Expedition Medicine, Finding Your Why. Um, but it's not just about Expedition Medicine. You know, there's a lot of the lessons here that can apply whether you are, um, you know, whether you're a doctor, a nurse, paramedic, or actually whether you are not in the medicine, medicine field at all, whether you're doing some other career or actually just going along in life. Um, there's a few sort of lessons that are hopefully valuable um, to everyone. So um, to begin, I thought we'll just hit the rewind button and we're going to go all the way back to the beginning of um, typical life journey when we sort of by some strange set of circumstances end up coming out of the womb and uh, saying hello to this amazing world that we live in and um, start life as a little little toddler and um, you know this this will be my journey and it's quite typical but it certainly won't apply to everyone but I think everyone should be able to see some some similarities uh, so you, at age of five you you start primary school um, and you have this amazing view of the world you know absolutely anything is possible um, and you're always really inquisitive you're always asking why and when people say to you what do you want to be when you're older um, you come up with the most bizarre ideas as so I, I remember when I was five or at least so I'm told if someone asked me what do you want to be when you're older I said I wanted to be a penguin I mean that is ridiculous like, I've got no idea why anyone would want to be a penguin um, but there's this amazing mind and you're very open to any possibility and anything's possible. Um, but you get a little bit older and um, the possibilities sort of narrow down. I realized that being a penguin probably wasn't practical, um, let alone feasible. And so I decided that, you know, I thought it'd be really cool to be an astronaut, um, you know, go to space. And um, that dream sort of fairly quickly went to bed. Although I must say that is starting to come back <laughs> um, with my recent sort of uh, career pathway. Um, but you essentially your your worldview kind of subtracts it goes from thinking you can be a penguin so an astronaut to, to slightly smaller and smaller things and um age 12 i went to secondary school and i remember being asked around that age you know what do you want to do when you're older and i said i wanted to be a fund manager because i'd heard that they make a lot of money and i don't even know what a fund manager does now let alone back then um it's completely meaningless to me um but again you know, I got to the age of sort of 14 and then I'm deciding what I'm doing two years ahead for my GCSEs. And then suddenly at the age of 16, I'm deciding what I'm gonna do for the, for the rest of my life. Um, and I tried a bit of work experience here and there and, um, you know, I'd always quite liked the sciences. Um, you know, I quite liked that you could have a clear answer to things, um, supposedly. And um, I like talking to people and medicine seemed like an, an obvious choice. And my parents are doctors, so I was kind of knew what that meant. Um, and so I found myself going to medical school at the age of 18. Um, and in medical school, you have to make some decisions every now and again. You have to decide what you're going to do for your interpolated degree, perhaps, you know, um, and then as you get a bit later, you might decide what you're going to do for your student selected components. And you're making smaller and smaller decisions. So, you know, when you're age five, you're trying to think about what you're going to do for your entire life. And when you're 14 you're thinking about the next couple of years and when when you're at university you're thinking about what are the choices i need to make now that are going to dictate how my next few months run um and suddenly you have been on a treadmill for 24 25 26 years you've been putting one step in front of the other one foot in front of the other and you always know what is going to happen when august comes around the start of the new academic year and it's, um, it's, it's quite familiar. It's a familiar place to be. Um, it feels safe. You know, you've got to this age without anything too drastically, um, too, too many drastic disasters, hopefully. And um, 
it's a very sort of familiar place to be. But university, you do your F1, you do your F2, you do your junior nursing years, your, your paramedic training, whatever it is, um, your graduate scheme. And suddenly you come to the end of this road that has been set out essentially for you as a result of the education system. And you find yourself standing at the end of this pathway, looking out at the entire rest of your life. You've got the whole world in front of you. And um, it's an incredibly daunting position to be in. Um, it's really scary because there are an unlimited number of possibilities and there's an unlimited number of different pathways you can take. And it's really, really scary because you've never been in that situation before. You've never got to this point where you have to think, you know, the decision I make now could impact on the entire rest of my, my life. And so what do we tend to do when we're faced with a scary situation um, or, or an unfamiliar situation? What, what we do is we tend to go back onto the thing that we've done a hundred times before. You know, we do the thing that we know best. And in the case of life and the education system that is um generally a case of getting back on the treadmill and um you've reached the age of 26 and and suddenly it's you know the the decision you make next in the case of specialty training as a medic uh might last you seven eight years and suddenly you'll pop out at the age of 35 so actually the decision you're making as a medical student which will tie you over for a year compared to the decision you're making at the end of your f2 year um you know deciding what especially to go in as a as a nurse for example that decision then is going to last you 10 years and in that 10 years a lot of things can happen um you can get married you can have kids you can have a mortgage you can have bills there's so many commitments that are having an impact on your decision it's not just the world is this crazy big place even though it is as um you know, demonstrated in this uh, picture here from ecuador suddenly it feels very, very much more narrow and we have to choose the option that gives us the greatest chance of success um, and being able to meet those commitments. And so essentially we do the thing that is most familiar to us and we get back on the treadmill. And that is what so many medics do and so many people coming out of graduate schemes do. They realize that, oh, I don't know how to deal with uncertainty. I don't know what is next for me. And so I'm going to apply for jobs and see what I get. And I know people in uh, the non-medical world who do exactly this. And I've got lots of medical friends who coming uh, up to the end of F2, they were essentially pinning the entire rest of their life on, you know, how an interview went. And essentially, you know, I've, I've got a couple of friends who applied for pediatrics and Dobbs and Gynae and GP. And the, the, you know, the, the decision of what they're going to spend the rest of their life doing essentially came down to their interview performance. And that might be, you know, a result of how much coffee you've had that day or how much sleep you had the night before. Um, it might be the mood of the person doing the interview, for example. So it's a heck of a big decision to, to rest on that, that small um, chance, essentially. But that is what we're comfortable doing. We're comfortable getting back on the treadmill. Just it doesn't matter what comes next, as long as that next step is there. Um, it's, it's where we feel comfortable. The trouble is if you spend your entire life on the treadmill and you never once step off to take a look around, you might realize that you actually flipping love the rowing machine, but you just never knew it because you didn't even know it existed. Um, I mean, it's a dubious analogy because no one loves the rowing machine, but anyway, let's put that to bed. Um, so eventually things seem like they're okay. 
you get back on the treadmill, you apply for a few different things, you get an obs and gyne training number, brilliant, you'll crack on with it. And lots of people have done this before. So you think everything is going to go well. But of course, life doesn't work out that way. And this is something that um, traditional medical training and a lot of um, career development things sort of fail to recognize is that just staying on the treadmill because that's what's familiar doesn't necessarily mean that's going to lead to a successful career. And eventually things go wrong um, or don't go as we expect. Um, just for a bit of context, this picture here shows Mount Kilimanjaro. Uh, it's where all the evacuation stretches are kept and it's just down from the, the base camp. And if something goes wrong, you have to sort of walk someone down and plonk them on this one wheeled stretcher and wheel them off down the mountain. Anyway, you'll, you'll see I've put quite a few photos in this talk, which are photos I've taken from my various expeditions and in general have very tenuous links to what I'm talking about, but I thought it was a, a nice excuse to put them in. Um, so back to the point, um, eventually things stop going quite to plan. And this is really important in the NHS. And there's been lots of work that's looked into um, essentially the state of retention and staffing and all of that. And uh, this was a report published in just last year, 2019, um, titled A Critical Moment, uh, NHS Staffing Trends, Retention and Attrition. And you probably remember the junior doctor strikes back in 2017 and the government put through this massive plan for 5,000 new GPs by, um, you know, within the next five years. Um, and this review last year found that there has been no progress towards the government target. Um, and actually the most recent data suggests numbers of GPs are actually declining. And this bit, the National GP Work-Life Survey reported that two out of every five GPs intended to quit in the next five years. So that's the survey of 2,195 GPs found 39% were likely to leave direct patient care by 2022. So that is a phenomenal number. And that's nearly double uh, compared to the number that, um, the equivalent number in 2005, which was only 19.4%. So obviously there's something that's going wrong. Let's look at Obzangaini training, seven year program. Um, you, you go in after foundation training um, and uh, the attrition rate from a 2016 review found that Obzangaini trainees, one in five doesn't complete their training. Again, something's going wrong. And that this, this is important because it's not just the doctor, the human on the end of that training program who is you know, not completing their training for a very real reason, you know, whether it's stress or um, unhappiness or something like that. Um, it's got a huge impact on the NHS as well. So this was another report done in 2019 by uh, Beach, and it showed that, it, well, it said that essentially retention is necessary for greater workforce stability. And essentially it was saying that, you know, the retention is a really big problem. It says one in nine staff, that's 135,000 people left the NHS in 27 to 2018. It also found this from a few other papers it looked at. It said happy, motivated staff who enjoy their job are less likely to leave. It said more engaged staff provide better, safer care and are less likely to be absent. And also said the average direct and indirect cost of replacing a member of staff in the NHS is £30,000. So if you think last in 2017-18, that was 135,000 people who left the NHS and the cost of replacing each one of those is about £30,000. Just think of the costs that are associated with essentially people having, being dissatisfied with their careers as they progress through their medical training. Hopefully that gives you some idea of the scale of the problem and the fact that actually it doesn't 
it does happen to everyone you know no one thinks no one goes into a training program and thinks i'm not going to finish it i'm not going to come out the other side the people who think that you know they're smart enough to not get on the training program in the first place and do something else um and i'll go into some of those options a bit later um so it, it happens it can happen to anyone it happens to a lot of people 40 percent of gps 20 percent of bobs and gyne trainees um so something that we actually need to consider before it's too late and you've been unhappy for several years and then you're quitting the job so essentially it comes back comes down to a question of why and why is this happening and essentially it, it comes down to a very 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 simple equation um and that is this philosophy that we are taught from a very young age that if you work hard that will lead to success and that is what will lead to happiness great seems seems sensible it's the the american dream um you know it's, it seems like a tried and tested formula um but the trouble is it doesn't really work because every time we work hard and we achieve a success that becomes the new baseline and so we have another new success that we need to find and so the cycle starts repeating and essentially happiness becomes this elusive entity that we never quite reach because you work hard and you achieve a success and then you have to work hard to achieve the next success and every time you reach a success your life circumstances have changed and actually what you know has taken you two years to um reach by that point isn't actually what you want anymore or need you know you've had kids by that time and suddenly you know being able to take unlimited time to go traveling isn't what you need you need to have a stable income to pay the bills and for example and so back it goes and you go around to the working hard cycle and as a very again dubious analogy but you know those underwater deep sea fishes that have a light that sort of dangles in front of them you know they if they they spend their whole life thinking you know if i just swim a little bit harder if i just swim that little bit faster i'll eventually get to the light you know they're, they're never going to reach happiness because it's it's always just that one step ahead and so actually there was a, a chap called sean Aker who is a harvard's uh, researcher and he, he's he's a, a big advocate for positive psychology who has done a lot of work and a lot of research around essentially this um, equation and he's written a book called the happiness advantage and essentially that says that success does come from hard work but hard work has to have happiness that is fueling it so if we can focus on the happiness first then the hard work suddenly isn't so hard anymore it becomes work we want to do and we're passionate about and we we find easy and when that's the case you know the work the hard graft is something that we are desperately passionate about then success is almost inevitable and he's got loads of great um great statistics in his book and he he's also done a ted talk which i thoroughly recommend watching and um, one of the statistics he he says one of the pieces of evidence he says is that when doctors were um you know self-identifying as being in a good mood they were 19 percent better at making faster and more accurate diagnoses than the ones who were burnt out um, and this is this has been seen in lots of studies um, that correlate stress levels and performance um, and so essentially we get to a point where we realize that having a successful career and being happy in life uh, are things that can go hand in hand but actually everyone's getting it wrong and it's not about focusing on the hard work it's about focusing on what makes you happy because that is what is going to stimulate the hard work and drive the success in the future so it seems like a really easy equation, really easy formula, you know, just be happy and life will be great. And it seems so straightforward. Obviously, if it was that easy, um, you know, we wouldn't be having worse rates of depression than we are now more than ever and um, all sorts of problems. 
And there's been a lot of research into why that's the case as well. And luckily, there's a few things that have been proven um, time and time and time again to have a really big impact on happiness. And essentially, there's there's two things. Um, so, oh, this is a this is a little video I put in of uh, climbing Mount Tupcal. So, if you're always focused on the end goal, then the journey is going to seem terrible. But if you learn to enjoy the journey itself, then it doesn't even matter if you get to the summit or not. We did get to the summit; there. it was amazing. So, that's good. So, coming back to it, happiness. There's there's two really big things that come um, to enabling happiness um, and firstly it's a positive mindset and again it sounds like a concept that's all very fluffy but it's it's essentially the idea that you know if we have a positive mind we think about things in a positive light that eventually trains our minds to think more positively about things and we're more likely to feel happy and there's a few things that are very very well um, researched and shown to improve our our mindset and generate a positive mindset over negative mindset firstly it's exercise so if we exercise regularly then that uh, boosts our serotonin levels, it um, helps deal with loads of things, um, gets us outside, um, and that really boosts our, our happiness potential. Um, secondly is the social network, and this is a massive part of why society is struggling at the moment, and that's because a lot of our traditional social structures, um, you know, even evolutionarily times, it would have been tribes, um, you know, coming forward through the agricultural revolution it would have been village networks um you know supporting each other with subsistence farming and then coming through even through the, the middle ages and um into very very recent history religion was a and still is a huge part of um people's social network um and people have this network and it, it gives you a sense of belonging and a sense of family and that is huge when it comes to people's mental mental health um, however, a lot of our these traditional social networks and um, true social networks are are being broken down more than ever. Um, partly as a result of the internet, which makes us more connected to lots and lots and lots of people, which means that we have more superficial connections with many people and less meaningful connections with a fewer number of people. So that's something to bear in mind. So having a really good social network is so important. And so if you're thinking, okay, you're going to get to the end of your foundation training. And you're going to spend the next 10 years in a job where you're working nights and weekends and um, you know you, you don't get a chance to have a social life then and you're bringing your home your work stresses back home to your family life you know how do you expect your social network to be a solid foundation that's going to support you in your positive mindset it, it's not it's it's unlikely to happen unless you're very very confident in your decisions that you've made and what you're doing in life um, so that's that's something to bear in mind um, and the third thing is, so, so the two things so far, they were exercising. The last thing is uh, a positive outlook. And this comes to something known as the Tetris effect. And essentially it's the idea that underpins uh, neuroplasticity, or well, that's, that's probably unfair, reducing neuroplasticity to a, a 1980s Game Boy game. Um, let, let me say neuroplasticity un underpins the, the Tetris effect. And that is the idea that the brain is plastic and the brain can adapt and learn to new things. Now, they did lots of studies in the 1980s on people who played a lot of Tetris and found that playing Tetris actually created a shift in the way their mind worked and the way they saw the world. And instead of dreaming about certain things, they would start having really vivid hypnagogic hallucinations almost of Tetris. And um, 
they actually tracked uh, certain people with brain imaging studies more recently and found if they played uh, Tetris for a certain amount of time every day, they would actually see changes in the, in the MRI scans of their brains. And this is what underpins the positivity, uh, the positive outlook um, principle, which is that if we train ourselves to do something regularly, it becomes a habit. And the positive outlook is essentially about trying to see the positive in um, a bleak situation, trying to find the positive in every negative situation. And for me, I really like drawing a, a parallel to photography um, in this case. And I listened to a talk by uh, Martin Hartley, who is an award-winning photographer, um, lead photographer for Sidetracked magazine. Um, and I listened to a talk between him and Kenson Hall a couple of weeks ago. Um, and he summed it up really nicely. He said, I hate taking photos on a blue sky sunny day. He said, they're so boring. You know, I'll wait for the worst storm, the biggest blizzard. Uh, he, he specializes in Arctic stuff. So he says he'll wait for the worst storm, the biggest blizzard when everyone else is, you know, thinking how terrible the weather is. And he's like, absolutely the best opportunity to get some interesting photos. And what photography does is it teaches you to look at a situation that every other person would also see and not necessarily pick out something but if you're looking at it with a photographer's mind you might notice that tiny little detail or you might be able to uh, look at a really terrible situation and you know turn it into a, an uplifting story um, you know there's there's a way of looking at the world that's slightly different when you get into photography and that mindset shift um which is being driven by the tetris effect means that you start seeing the world differently in everyday situations, even when you don't have a camera. Um, and I really like this video because um, it's one that I took in the Zara Valley in, in India, it's a night lapse. And it shows that if you look hard enough, even into the darkest spaces, you will always find a positive message. And essentially it was very, very dark. It was very cloudy. It was very, very, very cold. Um, and you know everyone was down in their tents. And I thought, you know, the, the stars are there it's a nice clear sky at times there's a lot of clouds but i'll um i'll see what happens when i take a photo for, for 90 minutes um on a time lapse and I, do, I don't know if you can see this but let's have a look i don't know if you can see but there's a lot of there's loads and loads and loads of shooting stars just whipping across the screen there and this is actually a, a time-lapse photo of the Perside Meteor Shower, um, which happens every August. And it actually peaked last night and it was very cloudy where I am, so I'm a bit disappointed. Um, but it's throughout the whole of uh, August and early September. If you um, have a nice clear night and you go out and look at the stars and you just stare at the sky um, for at least 20 minutes, half an hour, without using your phone, so it allows your eyes time to fully adjust, um, you'll see countless shooting stars. So if you've never seen a shooting star, now is the time to go and have a look. Um, so those are, the, those are the three things really. It's uh, exercise, positive outlook, and um, a social network. So the second aspect of the unlocking the happiness potential um, is having a sense of purpose. And it's about finding your why. And this is something that so many people lack. And it's because we stop, we stop wondering what our sense of purpose is. We essentially um, go from asking why as children, you know, why this, why that, why this, to asking what, what should I do next? What job am I going to do? You know, um, how much money do I need to make? You know, what are my options? It's, it's not why anymore, it becomes what, and that really closes down our thinking. 
And we need to go back to how we were as children and ask why more to find out what our sense of purpose is. And I wanted to put up this slide because it, I thought it was quite interesting. Um, some of you might have heard of the five whys machine. Essentially, it was designed by a chap in the early 1900s, a guy from Japan. Um, and it, the idea is that if you ask why for a situation, that only gives you an immediate reason. You have to then ask why again to find out the sort of more underlying cause. And you have to ask why again and again and again until you get to the root cause. Um, and that applies to finding a sense of purpose. It applies to um, trying to find what's driving a certain behavior, but it also applies when things go wrong and it underpins um, the NHS's root cause analysis tool. So for example, take the situation if someone gets given um, IV morphine or oral morphine by the intravenous route, which is an Arkham never event. If you ask why, you could say, oh, it's because the, the nurse threw it up into an IV syringe rather than oral syringe, and you blame the nurse and, you know, it's not very good. But if you ask why again, you, you find out that actually it's because they weren't um, stocking any purple syringes, what they're meant to be drawn up into. And you ask why again, and you find out that actually it's because the admin person responsible for ordering syringes is actually too tied up in um, looking after the rotor that is so poorly managed and so that she doesn't get around to ordering syringes and then you ask why again and and so you, you go back and you find out that the, the you know the, the real reason for why that person ended up getting a, a wrong route um, administration of, of morphine would be because you know it's nothing to do with the doctor or the nurse or the patient or the syringe. it's to do with the the process that underpins it and um, this methodology uh, was designed by uh, Toyota, um, and he's the chap who went on to develop Toyota, the most uh, one of the most successful car manufacturing companies in history. Um, and it underpins the NHS root cause analysis tool, and it is the tool that we should actually apply to ourselves and not just to systems. Um, and so that that leads me on to my next slide, which is about the end goal. Um, you might remember. Sort of early on in the talk, I had the picture um, of the chap uh, standing. It's it actually Tim Mosdale. He's a legendary mountaineer. He's summited uh, Amadablam, I think, nearly 20 times now. Um, I was with him in Ecuador in January. And it, it's this picture where you're standing at the end of a, a road and you've got the whole world ahead of you. And that's the situation we are in in our mid 20s at this point. Um, but people only ever focus on one one outcome and if you're a medic uh, a doctor it's often you know you want to become a consultant or a gp but if you were to ask why that's the case um you get to some interesting conclusions because it's an assumption you know it's an assumption for most medics that they say you know you go through medical school and you come out your foundation training you specialize and you know you become you want to become a consultant of course you do why would you not um, but then if you ask why do you want to become a consultant these are some of the most common answers that people give might be money. It might be flexibility. You know, when I'm when I'm a consultant, I won't need to work so many night shifts. Uh, when I'm a consultant, I can take more days off. It might be familiarity. You might be disillusioned with the fact that you change departments every four months or six months. You know, you just want to get to know stuff. You happen to, you never feel like you really belong as a junior doctor rotating through certain places. Um, and then there might be other reasons. Um, because I, I think these three reasons, money, flexibility, and familiarity, they are genuine reasons, but they're not necessarily good reasons to become a consultant. And I'll, I'll come back to that. 
there are some good reasons why you, why you might want to become a consultant. Um, so people uh, might want to develop an advanced skill set and people might want to um, have the prestige of being a consultant. And these are all, you know, good reasons. You know, it might be really important to you that you have the, the title of consultant or you have that advanced skill set. You become an expert in your field. And that is fine. That is absolutely a good reason to get on that training pathway and spend every day um, as a on the treadmill, you know, just putting one foot in front of the other to get to that end goal. But as long as you've thought about it and you've thought about why you want to be a consultant and it's because you want to be an expert and you thought about why you want to be an expert and you've thought about, you know, why that is, as long as you can answer that question, you know, the root cause of why you want to become a consultant. And actually when you go to the end pointless audit or whatever else, you are, um, you're going to be satisfied. So I'm going to put up a nice photo of Chimborazo here. So this is from Ecuador as well. Um, and on this, uh, okay. So this this photo from Ecuador. This is Chimborazo, which you may or may not have heard of. Um, but this is actually the highest point on Earth. Um, I'm sure everyone here has heard of Mount Everest, 8,848 meters high. So it's obviously the highest mountain on the planet. However, there are different ways of measuring it. And Chimborazo, just because of the way the Earth is uh, bent and folded at the crust, uh, the summit of Chimborazo is actually the highest point on Earth. Uh, it's the closest point on Earth to space. Um, and it's got uh, not a very good summit success rate. And I was climbing this back in January, and we didn't make it to the summit. Um, but it was okay. It was an amazing trip. And actually, for us, it was all about the journey, you know, the whole experience of being in Ecuador, you know, climbing the volcano and um, getting to know the country and the people it was everything that goes around it. It wasn't just about getting to the summit because otherwise you're setting yourself up for disappointment. That's what everyone does in medicine and in life. They, they decide that they want to be a consultant. They decide that they want to be, you know, the CEO of their firm. They decide they want to be, you know, a band-aid matron looking after the world, whatever it is. They, you know, they make these decisions and they're just setting themselves up. For, for failure because actually a lot of the time that doesn't happen as I showed you in the, the statistics from those studies before. So I just wanted to talk on a slightly more practical level of uh, just opening people's eyes as to what else there might be. Um, obviously this is about extreme or expedition medicine which I'm going to come on to a bit more but it's not just expedition medicine you know you've got to find your own why your own sense of purpose um, and for me I'm, I'm lucky I found you know I love travel I love photography and I love medicine, especially pre-hospital medicine. So expedition medicine was the perfect answer for me. Uh, but that won't be the case for everyone. Um, and the trouble is when you're a medical student, um, you are often only given two options. It's the case of you get on the training pathway or you're never going to make it, essentially. That's what you're told. And you're told, oh, yeah, you could take a year out or you could take two years out, maybe go to Australia and you know, live a little. And then you have to get on the training pathway. That's kind of the only option you're given. But it's absolute rubbish. Um, and I've met so many people who inspired me who've not done that. And I made the uh, sort of fairly brave decision, which was very scary to not do that as well. But I just wanted to give you guys some uh, indication of what the options are um, if expedition medicine isn't for you. So firstly, you can locum. So that is where you just essentially work uh, agency shifts and you essentially um, get paid much better than if you're on a training job and you know if money is your motivation for becoming a consultant well I can tell you now that if you locum full-time in your first year post foundation you will earn as much money uh, almost as much money as a consultant in that first year 
just by working as a locum. So if you actually wanted to set yourself up for life, it's better to earn that money now before you've got kids and other commitments and bills and mortgages. And you know, and you can actually put away some of that money and invest in property, for example, you know, get your foot on the property ladder. Um, so, you know, being a consultant for money is not necessarily the best, best reason. Junior clinical fellow jobs. So these are standalone uh, medical jobs in hospitals. Um, and every, pretty much every hospital has them because there aren't enough training numbers. There's not enough budget to fill every single um, required post with a training, trainee doctor. So essentially they have these junior clinical fellow jobs, which are standalone jobs. And you can be quite flexible. So for example, after my uh, second foundation year, I took on a junior clinical fellow job um, in the emergency department. And my, my job plan was two months off, followed by four months of 50% part-time, followed by six months of 30% part-time. And that was to allow me to do my expeditions. Um, so it's very flexible. And then I did a few months of locoming and then I decided actually I want to get some intensive care experience. So I found a, an intensive care junior clinical fellow job at another hospital, which was 50% part-time. You know, there's countless options. And there's, I've got friends who've done junior clinical fellow jobs in education and in neurology research. Um, my old housemate was doing a, a job in, you know, fantastic neurology centers where he was essentially helping to run clinical trials um, alongside doing neurology clinics. And he's always wanted to be a neurologist and he didn't have to wait till he was a consultant, you know, straight out of his foundation years. He was do, running clinics, you know, doing lumbar punctures, helping with clinical trials in a supported way. That meant he felt so much more fulfilled uh, than deciding that you have to live a deferred life and wait 10 years. Going to management consulting, plenty of options there if you want to go non-clinical. There's all sorts of other parts of medicine that um, you don't get told about at medical school. So lifestyle um, medicine, um, which is becoming very popular these days uh, with regards to like sports and nutrition and exercise and sleep, health, um, nutrition, aesthetics, wellness. And of course, expedition medicine, extreme medicine. Um, there are so many categories here and it doesn't just have to be emergency medics. Um, I get asked this all the time on my Instagram. I get people messaging me saying, you know, I'm a nurse. Can I do expedition medicine? I'm a parent. Um, you know, I'm a, a dentist. Can I do expedition medicine? I've had a pharmacist message me recently. Um, you know, all sorts of people who want to get involved from, I think the youngest has someone like 16 who's thinking about going to medical school so you can do expedition medicine, um, all the way up to uh, people who've spent half their life in the army. You've got so much more experience than me. Um, and the, the world of extreme medicine is possible for anyone. Uh, there's a, a fantastic um, ophthalmology, ophthalmological surgeon who does loads of uh, humanitarian work and saves the eyesight of lots of people in, in Africa. Uh, there's loads of surgeries, uh, there are um, humanitarian responses, and I listened to a talk with um, Javid, who's the president of MSF a couple of weeks ago, and he said they employ pretty much every single specialty, and they employ pharmacists and nurses and doctors and dentists, you know, you name it, there is a possibility for you to do it. And the way you'll get to do it is by hitting pause on the treadmill stopping for a minute and considering your purpose and considering your why and eventually when you find what does drive you and you you knock on enough doors and discover your possibilities you, you'll find something that works for you and if you've already made up your minds and many of you probably will have done because you're on this talk that you know extreme medicine is the one well whether you want to be floating down a river in the amazon or you know going to the international space station or 
diving, whatever it is, you know, climbing mountains, there is a, there is a place there for you. Uh, you just need to have the drive and the focus and you'll, you'll get there, but you need to underpin it with a really strong sense of purpose. So there's loads of options, loads of options. And a nice way I, of thinking about it is trying to frame your own sense of purpose if you're not really sure is to think, okay, if this time next year you have to stand up on a stage and give a TED talk, what would your topic be on? And how would you like to be introduced? And if, when I said that to you, you thought, well, I know exactly what I would talk on, then that's your passion. You know, does that passion fit with going and doing a, a typical training program? And if, if it does, then brilliant. If it doesn't, then, you know, think about what your options are. Don't just get on the training program because that's what everyone tells you you have to do. You don't. But if when I said that, you, you had no idea, you're like, God, I've got no idea what I talk about, then that means you're lacking a sense of purpose and you shouldn't just get on the treadmill because you don't have a clear answer as to why. And so you should probably hit pause and take some time to have a think and to explore and knock on a few more doors, discover what your options are until you do eventually find uh, that sense of purpose. And so I'll come on a little bit about me that I've been incredibly lucky with the expedition medicine and that I completely stumbled across it. Um, I was in, I was working on a community drug and alcohol job at the time and I'd used up all my annual leave to go on a, a holiday with my, my parents. Um, but I was desperate to go skiing because I didn't manage to get any annual leave the year before to go skiing and I really wanted to go skiing, but you know, it wasn't going to happen. So I started looking for essentially conferences and ski resorts and I came across one, um, thought that'll do. I can get some study leave for that booked on that and thought, great, what an opportunity to go skiing. And, um, that was a course on, on expedition medicine. And World Extreme Medicine has courses all over the world that you can use study leave for. Um, so I, I sort of went to this course, not really thinking anything of it. And the first lecturer was uh, someone called Dr. Lucy Obolensky. And she absolutely inspired me and sort of created this huge U-turn in my, in my career, uh, where essentially she started off life on the treadmill um, and she went through medical school, foundation training, went through orthopedics and got to ST6 or something of orthopedics training and not far off being a consultant and um and essentially at that point she was like how oh, this is this isn't what i do what i want to do you know i want to be traveling the world and you know she had an interest in um global health and she set up a clinic in kenya and then got interested in emergency medicine and, and then started doing expedition medicine and with, yeah she's not a consultant but who cares? Because what she does do is she works as a GP part-time. She works a couple of days a month on the air ambulance. She works as a uh, trust-grade registrar with no responsibilities and better pay than any of the consultants in emergency medicine. And she's worked as David Attenborough's expedition doctor in on Blue Planet and Planet Earth. You know, it's absolutely mind-blowing. And I was just stunned that this was even possible in medicine. In fact, I didn't even really know that traveling was possible with medicine until this point. So my mind was blown. Um, and... So I got back from that talk and I was meant to be going to a, a surgical interview the next day uh, from that conference. Sorry, I was meant to have a surgical interview the next day, the day after I got back. And I obviously just cancelled that and thought, you know, I'm not, I'm not ready. I don't, I don't know why I'd be doing that. I haven't discovered my why yet. So I thought, OK, this is a, a door that has presented itself to me and I'm knocking on this door and I want to see where it goes. And I started applying for jobs, paying off email after email after email, building up my experience in what I thought would be useful for expedition medicine. So I was joining event medicine companies, working in you know, um, working at events like Tough Mudder and the 
European Championships and building up that skill set um, to eventually then get my first job, which was on Mount Kilimanjaro. And this was my my home for three weeks. Um, it was a long trip. Uh, we spent six, uh, three, four weeks on the mountain in total, looking after six groups. And that was my office uh, for, for three weeks. It's certainly a lot better than a, an A&E department with no windows. Um, and a lot of people do expedition medicine thinking it's an opportunity for a free little trip up Kilimanjaro on your year out. And then you get back on the treadmill. Well, I was saying, well, actually, you know, I love this. It was nearly some of the best weeks of my life. And the skills I developed on Kilimanjaro just immediately made me a better doctor. You know, I had to plan ahead for risk. I had to think about evacuation management, you know, risk management, you know, diagnosing um, altitude sickness with, you know, no, no, no kit apart from a, a SATS probe and a stethoscope, neither of which are particularly useful, by the way. Um, and, you know, you have to develop a real skill set that you don't have to develop as a, as a doctor within the NHS. And ultimately, it made me a better leader, a better team player, um, you know, better diagnostician, better clinician. Um, you know, there are so many skills that you can learn from expedition medicine that will make you a better doctor in your day job. And that's just that's just the technical skills, because the other things you can learn are uh, more important than just the technical skills. It can give you a sense of purpose. Um, and I realized after doing Kilimanjaro and then getting my next job in the Sahara Desert and then to Everest Base Camp that actually, you know, I, I want to do expedition medicine. I don't want it to just be a thing I dabble in for a year out while I, you know, before I go back to real life, as it were. I wanted that to be my real life. And so suddenly my whole mind shift changed and I had a completely different view of medicine. Uh, suddenly it, it wasn't a means to an end. There wasn't a way of paying the bills, you know, a hospital that I had to go to. Suddenly it just represented this world of opportunity, which included, you know, working humanitarian areas, you know, going to space, if, you know, that's possible. Um, going to far flung corners of the earth, northern Pakistan. This is the Gondagorala from Pakistan last summer. You know, getting to go to all these incredible places that I never, ever, ever thought in a million years I would be able to go to. And so I suddenly had a very different sense of purpose, but it wasn't just about traveling. It was actually the fact that, you know, the, I loved the medicine, you know, the diagnostic uncertainty and the fact that you get all these transferable skills, the fact that you have, um, you know, potentially really unwell patients that you have to manage in a really harsh environment. You know, there's so much excitement and so much, so much that you can glean from being a really good expedition doctor that you can use to take back to your practice in the hospital. And, you know, if you can imagine doing, you know, 100 eye surgeries, for example, in a minimally resourced setting in rural Africa, that's going to make you a much better eye surgeon when you're in state-of-the-art facilities in London. And, you know, if I've had to deal with someone with a SATS of 48% on oxygen being carted down the side of Kilimanjaro on one of those trolleys with one wheel, you know, that's going to make me so much more comfortable dealing with patients who come in with a SATS of 80%. And we've had quite a few of those recently. You know, there are so many skills. Um, that you can take from expedition medicine. And I'm a passionate advocate for it because it's not just meant I love my career, it's, it's made me a much better doctor. That every single time I go into A&E, you know, it's not just, oh, it's another day at work. It's uh, great, what am I gonna see today? Am I gonna see a shoulder dislocation? Am I gonna see a chest pain? Am I gonna see someone who's potentially had a, you know, some, some catastrophic headache or something like that? You know, all of these things that I might see on expedition, that means I can get that extra little bit of practice that will mean I'm a better doctor when I'm on expedition doing the thing that I love. And so that's why 
I think it's so important to find a sense of purpose and find happiness because anything's possible. Um, you just need to decide what you want to do and get out and do that, do it. So just to recap, first step is realizing we're all stuck on the treadmill. It doesn't matter what stage you are in life. It doesn't matter who you are, what you're upbringing. You know, we're all on a treadmill of one sort. And once we can recognize our own treadmill, once we can appreciate that we're on a treadmill, that insight allows us to do something. Secondly, we need to flip our mindset. Success doesn't lead to, sorry, hard work doesn't lead to success, which leads to happiness. It's actually happiness that needs to come first. And we need to focus on being happy with what we're doing and the success will, will follow. Leading on to that, it's a positive mindset, which has exercise, social network, and positive thinking, and a sense of purpose. And lastly, it's about asking why. Going back to that childish mindset of asking why. And if you don't know what the answer is, then explore your options, because there are a million things you could be doing. And it would be a shame to just get on the treadmill because you haven't had the time or the energy to explore what else is out there. So, Hopefully that has given you some ideas and now I think it's time for all of you to go out there and find your own why. Thank you. Nathan, thank Absolutely. you very much indeed for your time this evening and for your insights. And we very much look forward to seeing you on the Plasty Brennan course in November. Um, and we run these live sessions every week. Uh, please sign up for the next ones. And it's been a real pleasure having so many people from such a geographically widely spread audience, including Bolivia, which I do think is our first from Bolivia having to join us. So Nathan, thank you for your time. Thank you everybody who's attended and listened to this uh, for your time too. And we hope to see you again soon. Thank you very much. <laughs>